We're going to continue this morning our series through 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verse 13, and going into chapter 5, about halfway to verse 11. And uh, Miss Sherry Blakeman is going to read for us this morning, so she can come on forwards. And as she comes forwards, I'm just going to say we're, today we're mainly going to focus on that first section, uh, right up to the end of, of chapter 4. And I'm going to call this part one, and next week it's going to be part two. And, and so uh, some of you may be sitting on the edge of your seat wondering about some of the theological details of this passage. Uh, this is a, one of those passages that's been debated, will be debated, until Jesus returns, especially verse 17. Um, some of those interesting details I'm going to leave off for next week. Okay, So you got to come back and hear part two to get into... Some more of the details. We're going to set everything up, I hope, uh, this morning in part one. So you can come on forward, Sherry. Thank you. Your print is much bigger. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Big print. Anyway, First Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Stand forever. 
Thank you, Sherry. Let's pray one more time as we come to the Word. Lord, we ask uh, for your help. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Help us to understand. Give me grace to speak what is right and and, uh, to do so in a way that honors you. God, say, um, it's a weighty thing to come before you in your word. And I pray you give us your help now. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Jesus' name, amen. The last couple of months, we've been walking through this little letter written by uh, the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Thessalonica. This is not news to many of you who have, have been here through this series. And if you haven't been, that's okay. Uh, go to our YouTube channel and catch up if you feel so inclined. Uh, early on in the series, I pointed out that this um, was a letter written by Paul that followed a general pattern of letters from that time and place. It bore the marks of, an, of a first century letter in that time and place. It was a real letter written to real people dealing with real problems. One of the interesting things that we begin to pick up on as we read through Paul's letters, so this one is a letter of Paul, and Paul wrote a dozen others, and you can read those in the New Testament. One thing is you get more and more familiar with Paul's letters that you pick up on is uh, you begin to see that not only did they have the typical characteristics of letters from that time and place, but Paul also had his own sort of general format. Uh, in, in terms of content, a general flow of thought and a pattern of sorts that he often followed in his letters. Overwhelmingly, in Paul's letters, he begins with teaching about who God is and what God has done. He begins with teaching what we'd call doctrine uh, content. And then as it goes on, he moves into application. He moves into what this means for our lives. This has a way of anchoring the people he's writing to, and us, of course, into something deeper. Paul's not just giving us a list of, you know, recommended, you know, life patterns or something. He's saying, based on the truth of who God is and what he's done, therefore, this is how you should live. Here's a few examples. Why should we forgive others? Because we've been forgiven, right? See how that's anchored in something that God has done. God did something, make a way for us to be forgiven. Therefore, forgive others. Why be faithful to your spouse? Because God keeps his promises. He's faithful to us. He's a promise-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God. Therefore, likewise, we should keep our promises and our covenants. Why don't we seek revenge? Because vengeance is the Lord's. He's a God of justice. He will sort those things out in his timing, right? See how all of these things, these applications, these ways of living are anchored in truths about God and what he's done. This is Paul's pattern throughout his his letters. You can find this pretty much in all of his letters. And occasionally some of the letters interrupted by travel plans like we've seen in 1 Thessalonians or other details. But you'll find this Uh, this general pattern throughout Paul's letters. But in our passage today, we find something really interesting. 
here in this section that would typically be Paul's application section when he's going into his exhortations and saying, therefore, live this way and and commanding the believers to to live out a certain uh, way of life in this section or the typical section where he would be doing that. He's where he's telling people how to live. We find a teaching about the second coming of Jesus. We find what we would typically think of as more academic, cerebral, doctrinal kind of stuff in his normal uh, place where he's giving exhortations and commandments. And if you're like me, we tend to think, I tend to think, about the second coming of Christ from a theological angle. I'm interested in all the how the prophecy fits together and the timing of things and what symbols and numbers and words mean and all this this sort of academic stuff, right? Or that's the way we think of it. What does it symbolize? What is the meaning of this prophecy and that prophecy? So why is that here in this section? In the section where Paul's normally giving the commands and the exhortations, the application stuff. Why is it here? This seemingly cryptic, mysterious teaching. We don't find it nor where we think we would normally would, but in the last section of his letter where he's dealing with our lives and how we should live. Why does Paul do this? Is there a lesson for us in this, in the way Paul arranges this material? Of course there is. Of course there's a lesson. Absolutely. But what is more, not only is there a lesson, I think the placement of this material, where it is in the book, is actually going to help us better understand what it means as well. But first, to get a hold of what that lesson is and what this, this stuff means, we first need to understand what is going on here that led Paul to write these words in the first place. So let's take a quick look at what is going on here in this passage uh, first, or what is going on in the situation. As I explained in prior weeks, Paul went through Thessalonica. And Felicia, if you've got the map accessible, go ahead and throw that up there. Some of y'all are tired of seeing this. You probably got it memorized by, by about now, but some, some folks are just now joining us. So I want to be sensitive to those people as much as I can be. She'll pull up the map in a moment. Paul went through Thessalonica sharing the gospel while on a missionary journey. And after a few weeks of preaching, he was run out of town because what he was saying was not popular, right? He was run out of town. And for reasons we don't know, he couldn't return to uh, Thessalonica. Perhaps there was some agreement uh, made between uh, some of the Christian, Christians in the area and the authorities that, that you know, they would let him live, let him out of prison if he would not return. We're not sure what the, the details were, but Paul says spiritual warfare was certainly one of the components. We looked at that a few weeks ago. So after leaving Thessalonica and being run out of town, he heads to Berea, where the same thing happens, and then finally down to Athens. And after some time, he sends Timothy to check on the church. So while they're here, thank you, Felicia. So while they're there, uh, Paul sends uh, uh, Timothy up to check on the church. And at some point later on, uh, Timothy's going to rendezvous back with Paul and the associates in, in Corinth. They're going to be over in Corinth um, by the time uh, Timothy begins to make his way down. And he gives an update on how things are going. Paul was very worried about them. 
And so Timothy comes with an update. And overall, he's, uh, he, Timothy gives a positive report. He basically says they're doing great, um, uh, or so it seems, but they have a few issues of concern. And Paul, in this letter, is addressing some of those concerns. He's encouraging them and building them up and, saying, and rooting them on, but trying to address some of their concerns. And we looked at some of those last week. Paul's going to address some other questions and concerns in this section before us this morning here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. One of the concerns raised by the church in Thessalonica has something to do with the coming of the Lord. Some argue that this was perhaps the main concern, the big concern that that they had. And um, one wonders then why Paul leaves it to the end, right? Again, kind of drawing to attention this, this sort of uh, strange placement of this issue for Paul. Why would you leave it at the end? This is the thing they're eager to hear. You know, they've, they've got a major concern and you're leaving it to the end of the letter. Uh, because Paul was run out of town early, he was not able to complete his teaching on the fundamentals of the faith. So we at least know part of it is just there's some things that had arisen that they couldn't fully grasp because they'd not been given the information. Right? And Paul was not able to complete his his um, series of teaching because he was run out of town. And some of that teaching had to do with the second coming of Jesus. So here Paul finally takes up this topic. But what was the concern? Here we go. What was the concern about the second coming? What was, what was the issue here? And why would Paul, again, wait until the very end of the letter to address it in this section filled with commands and exhortations? Well, let's turn to the text now and see if we can piece together some of what was going on here. Look with me at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. It appears that some of their members had fallen asleep. Some of these new Christians, perhaps maybe family members, we're not sure all the details, but some of these new believers had fallen asleep. That is, they had died. And sleep here, uh, just in case there's any confusion, sleep does not refer to the soul here, but to the body. The body is asleep. Soul is with the Lord. And so, and I'll have some more to say about that in a moment. But we wonder here, what's the problem? What's going on? Why, you know, people die all the time, right? Why are they grieving excessively? To the point where Paul would point it out here. Paul seems to imply there was excessive grieving here. Like others who do not have hope. Paul is not saying that we should not grieve. Don't hear that. He's not rebuking them for their grief. Period. The issue is excessive grief. Grief is an important part of life in a fallen world. Honestly, honestly, I think sometimes we don't grieve enough. Sometimes we can grieve too much. Sometimes we don't grieve enough. Christians at times, I think, are bad about just flying through the grief of life and you know, cranking the music up and just pretending like it's not there. Did you know that in the Bible there are more psalms of lament than any other kind? More psalms of lament than psalms of jubilee, than psalms of royal songs, psalms of wisdom, there are more psalms of lament than any other kind. Psalms of thanksgiving, there are more of lament. Life is full of grief. So we must take time as people, even believers, who live in a fallen 
and broken world to grieve and lament. Jesus wept. At times, we must do the same. However, we must not do so as those who have no hope. This is the concern here. There was something that these dear Christians were believing that was amiss. And they were grieving excessively, even as the pagan world was around them. Paul brings it to attention. What was leading to this extreme grief? Well, God is going to give us uh, or give them several reasons why they should not grieve this way. We're going to see three, three things, little pieces here or responses to, to this excessive grieving. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This verse gives us the, a clue that was missing. It appears these believers were uncertain what had happened to the souls of their deceased brothers and sisters. Where were they? What was going on? Are they with God? Where are they? Paul had not been able to get this material across to them. Paul reassures them that Jesus will bring those who have fallen asleep with him when he returns. Well, what's the implication? They're with the Lord. They're with the Lord. And when he comes again, they will come with him. Now, Paul says their bodies are sleeping the soul is with the Lord. This is the first piece of Paul's response to their grief. Their soul is with God. Okay? And when Christ returns, he'll bring their soul with him. What is more, they will not miss out, but will have a front row seat to the second coming. This is the second thing that Paul wants to tell them. They're going to have a front row seat. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, those who are living are not going to be first in line. Right? And everybody else that's died, wherever they are, are going to be left behind somewhere. No, rather, those who have died will be first. In other words, they will have a front row seat to the events that happen at the second coming. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul is telling these Thessalonians that their loved ones who have gone to sleep before them, not only are their souls with the Lord, and not only have, will they have a front row seat to the events of the second coming, but he says when he comes back, they will be first in line to have their bodies raised. This is the third thing Paul wants them to see. Paul says they're okay. They're not going to miss out on something. To the contrary, they're going to be there, right there with the Lord and have a front row seat. All of this would have stood in sharp contrast to the pagan world around them. Most other religions don't have a concept of a resurrected body. Okay? Christian faith teaches that we will receive new resurrected bodies. Isn't it glorious to know that one day our ears will work? Those in the back have a hard time hearing me. Your ears are going to work. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Isn't it glorious to know that our joints won't hurt? Out there in those sometimes often uncomfortable pews, it's not going to hurt anymore. Right? No more cancer. 
God created the body. He loves the body. Other religions do not have such hopes. And this was true of the pagan religions that were common when Paul wrote this letter. Archaeologists have found ancient epitaphs. Who knows what an epitaph is? Okay, yes, it's a little note on the grave marker stone saying something about the deceased or maybe something they wanted to say to the people that stood there at the grave. It's an inscription on on a gravestone. Felicia, I'm going to have you pull up that one. There we go. This is a grave marker from Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. Megan and I went there for our honeymoon. We found this on the marker, or or this note, sorry, on this marker here, uh, especially uh, moving when we were there, so I snapped a picture. It reads this. There's a lot of similarity to the passage we're in today, so just keep that in mind. Here sleeps in Jesus, united to him by faith and all the grace of a Christian life, all that was mortal of Mrs. Ann Burgess. So in other words, her body is here, okay? Her soul is with the Lord. Once the tender and affectionate wife of the Reverend Henry John Burgess of the Isle of Wight, She died on the 25th of December, 1771, in giving birth to an infant daughter who rests in her arms. She here waits the transporting moment when the trump of God shall call her forth to glory, honor, and immortality. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Is that not beautiful? Do you think this family was weeping on Christmas? course they were they were absolutely heartbroken mom was gone the baby was gone but they were not weeping as those without hope right they had a future hope something that was going to happen future that was glorious and wonderful and they knew that uh, their dear family members were with the lord that's comfort that's hope compare now such a marker such a christian a robust Christian uh, epitaph, hope and death, with the, with the epitaphs from the ancient pagan world that the Thessalonians lived in. They reveal a huge difference between the hopelessness of the pagan world and the hope of Christians. And the archaeologists have discovered uh, some of these epitaphs from that time and place, and one scholar writes these words. Quote, a very common Latin abbreviation that was used on pagan tombstones in that time and place translates as this. Quote, I was not, I was. I am not, I care not. End quote. This is a very common epitaph from that time and place in the world. Can you imagine standing at the grave of a loved one and reading something like that? I don't care about you. I'm not here anyway. I'm nowhere. That was you know the common perspective in that time. And if that was the commonly held perspective of the time surrounding death, no wonder if this had crept in or maybe the Christians were thinking this about their loved ones, perhaps their fellow believers. No wonder they were grieving immensely. They've missed the Lord. He's coming back. We don't know how all that works, but, but they're dead and they're no more and they missed it. You could see why they would be grieving terribly. 
That same scholar writes about another ancient epitaph. Quote, another ancient epitaph expressed a similar view, reads this way. Quote, we are nothing as we were before. Reader, consider how swiftly we mortals drop back from nothing to nothing. End quote. That was a common perspective. For the pagan, there was little hope of an afterlife at all and almost no hope for an afterlife with a body. Paul informs the believers of the truth regarding the death of their loved one, ones in Christ and exhorts the believers here not to grieve this way. Don't grieve this way. He says not only is there an afterlife, but there's a resurrection and your loved ones who trusted in Christ will not miss out on any of it. What glorious good news. And he just states it matter-of-factly. How is Paul so confident? How can Paul be so confident of these things that are so cryptic and mysterious to us? He gives us two reasons for his confidence in this section. And I'll mention the second one first. And it's in verse 15. Because he received a word from the Lord, Paul says. This could mean that Jesus gave Paul some kind of a direct revelation, perhaps. But many believe that what Paul was probably meaning here is is a teaching that was given by Jesus when he was on the earth. Jesus would have taught many things that aren't weren't written down in the scriptures. So perhaps what Paul means here is that this was a commonly held teaching of Christ that he knew about and now communicates to them. In other words, this was something uh, Jesus taught the apostles while on the earth during his ministry. The other reason Paul can be so very confident of these things is what he says in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Notice, again, that anchoring that that Paul is doing here, right? He gives a, 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 a teaching, a doctrine, so to speak, a truth about God, what he's done, and then anchors it, um, or he anchors it in, in other things. Christ uh, died and rose again. So everyone, therefore, who is united to Christ by faith will also rise, even after their body dies. This is the second reason for Paul's confidence. Jesus rose again, and everyone who is united by faith to him will also rise. And that was what was on the uh, the epitaph there. First Corinthians six fourteen, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Galatians two twenty, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is over and over and over again in the New Testament. Paul connecting Christ's resurrection with our own life and resurrection, over and over again. What a contrast from the lifeless, hopeless perspective of the pagan world. Do you have this hope? Do you believe these things? Because if you do, it will make a big difference in how you live your daily life. Now back to my original question. Why does Paul include this in the final section of the letter? This glorious information. In the section with the application and the commandments. Why does he put it there? Is Paul just being mean? Making them wait until the very end to give them the good news about their deceased loved ones? Or is there some other reason or logic here? 
Of course, he's not being mean. Paul loves these people, right? It's not just being difficult. I believe Paul includes this important information about the second coming of Jesus here in this final section because it is actually a part of his exhortations. It is a teaching that impacts your daily life. Right? This has profound impact on how you live. This is not just theology, not just academic mumbo-jumbo or interesting cryptic stuff. He's saying this is, this is a doctrine to be lived, not just thought about and taught. This is practical stuff. So Paul includes it in the section on the very practical stuff. And this is why Paul ends with these words in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, right? Remind each other of these things when you're facing death, when you're dealing with this stuff. Remember these things. This would have been a great relief to the believers in Thessalonica, and it should be a great relief to us, to all of us here who believe. But there is one more glorious piece of information we're given here in this passage, and I've saved it for the very end. Because it's located in one of the most hotly debated verses in all of the New Testament. Verse 17. Look there with me now. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That uh, phrase, caught up, is a, uh, the Greek word behind that was actually translated into Latin, um, and in the Latin Vulgate uh, is where we get this word that now comes to us in English, rapture. Some of y'all familiar with the teaching of the rapture? You've heard this term before. I'm going to disappoint you today. I'm not going to be talking about that. Today, I'm going to get into some of that uh, next week. But that's not the glorious piece of information, okay? I don't think, and that's a part of what I want to say about the meaning of this passage. I think we get distracted by that. And that's not Paul's point here. I think Paul would be bowled over and surprised with how much we've sort of run with certain ideas this way and that way. We miss the basic point here. It's that last clause, that last expression. So we will always be with the Lord. That's the glory. I mean, all of this is glorious. But that's a glorious piece of information that we just pass right over. The believers in Thessalonica had somehow missed this information. The persecution they were dealing with led them to believe that the return of Christ was imminent. That he was to come very soon. But some had died and perhaps they thought that these loved ones were not with the Lord somehow. Or that they would miss out on the great day when Christ would come back. But Paul says, no, we will always be with the Lord. That's at least what I want to focus on as I read this. Maybe Paul had a, another idea. Even in death, we are with God. That's how I read this. Everyone who has put their faith in Christ, for the follower of Jesus, death is gain. It is a moment of hope because we go to be with Jesus. We are always with the Lord. But let me pause here to say something to all of us here that should sober us as well. But you cannot say that if you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, 
This is not true for you. Death is the most horrific, terrible thing you can ever imagine if you are not in Christ. Complete separation from everything good. It's to bear the weight of your own sin forever and ever. It's to endure the horror of the cross on and on and on and on and on and to never, ever die. Some scoff and say there's no such place. It's uncomfortable to think about this. I don't like talking about it. If there is a doctrine that I would get rid of, if I could, contrary to what my friend Matt said when he was here a few weeks ago, it would be this one. This is tough. This is a hard teaching. But it proves God's justice also. There's, a, there's another side to it. Some scoff and say there is no such place. If there is no such place, I'm here to say there's no God. And he's not just if there is one. But I assure you there is a place called hell. It may seem unbelievable. Don't take my word for this. Okay, about this place. It may seem unbelievable, but no person in the Bible places more stress on hell as the final consequence of God's judgment towards people who rejected Christ and rejected God than Jesus himself. Jesus talked about this more than anyone. I was speaking with my mother recently and she was telling me about a time that she had had to have some kind of scan that required her to go into this big tube-like machine. Have any of y'all ever, like a big MRI machine or... I don't know what some of the other ones are, but it's big machines you have to like, you know, lay down and go inside. And she had to do that not long ago. And she was dealing with some claustrophobia when she was in there. It was very uncomfortable and made her anxious. But they gave her a little speaker in her ear so they could talk to her and reassure her while she was in there. Feeling claustrophobic and, you know, closed up in this place. She said it also helped that she could see the end of the tunnel. So there was a little bit of light. I guess she was all tight in there and she could kind of see the light a little bit. And that helped her. Because it reminded her there was a way out, an exit. In hell, there is no exit. There is no end. There is no way out. There's no speaker, no voice communicating with you, reassuring you. No light at the end of the tunnel. Just misery forever and ever as you bear the weight of your own sin and your own rejection for all eternity. Your own rejection of God for all eternity. The exit ramp is now. Now is the exit ramp. Get on the ramp. Don't delay. So I'm emphasizing this to you. All of you. Get on the ramp. Don't delay. Run to Jesus. That day which I believe is what is being described here in this passage before us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. We'll talk about that more next week. Some people see this Differently, and that's okay. Brothers and sisters in Jesus see this passage a little different. I think this is the moment of the last judgment, okay? And it will come like a thief. Jesus will descend, rescue his children, and then will pour out his wrath upon all the rest. Only those in Christ will be rescued from God's wrath. Are you in Christ? This is the question. This is the pressing issue of the entire Bible. Why did Jesus come? Because of our sin. Run to the rescuer. Run to him. He's come for you. He died for you. Run to him. This is the most important question you will ever answer. Jesus made a way for you to escape the righteous wrath that you and I deserve. And that way is simple faith and trust in him. 
in all that he did for us. You have to do anything. You just come with your nothing. And you say, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Be all for me. You've done all for me. I trust it. I believe it. He paid for your sins. Either him or you. So I want you now to close your eyes with me here. I'm just going to pray. And I just encourage you to, to think about this prayer. And if this is your prayer today, I, ho- I hope this is your prayer. And I, and I encourage you to pray these words. Jesus, I have sinned and I cannot save myself. I cannot repay the debt that I owe to God. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying on the cross for my sins and being punished in my place and for giving me your righteousness and for rising again from the dead. Please forgive me for all of my sins and help me to live for you. That should be all of our, all of us collectively. That should be our prayer today as we think about this coming day when the Lord will descend and the window of opportunity, the, the door of salvation will no longer be open. It will be closed in that day and no more exit. Now is the, is the day of salvation. Now is the day to come to Jesus. And I pray you do that.